Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9 podcast. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing really well. Today is a, uh, a special birthday for someone on Babylon 5. I'm going to let you guess who it is. Oh, I'm, it is? Yes, I'm not going to tell you who it is. Because I'm not supposed to know much about uh, is it. A, <laughs> is it an actor's birthday or is it a character's birthday? It, it is an actor's birthday. It is a character we have yet to meet um, yet, but we will be meeting soon, probably based on the. Uh, uh, so that Sheridan, uh, Sheridan, I assume. Yes, it is Sheridan's birthday. Happy birthday! Okay, good. Because if you said it was Marcus, I was going to scream at you and ask you why you were bringing up Marcus before we had to talk about him. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know much about him at all, but we'll see. Uh, it, it's it's a little preview for all yeah. you listeners out there in Radio Land who are experiencing Babylon Five for the first time. Uh, Marcus is the worst, yeah. just the absolute worst. Yeah, I don't really know who that is, but it's common knowledge, though. You know, season two, you're going to have someone else in command. It will no longer be Sinclair. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's kind of it, it'll be an interesting discussion when we get there about who you prefer, Sinclair, Sheridan. Like, I. I don't have a strong preference. I kind of like both, but I also see kind of limitations of both as actors. So it, it'll be an interesting conversation when we get there. We're not actually that far away from it. Yeah, we're getting close. I'm I'm anxious to see what happens, but yeah, we'll. Yeah, well, d don't expect any big transition. Um, <laughs> that doesn't really. That's not really how the show rolls, or really how '90s television rolled. You know. Okay, so I All guess right. that means he doesn't die. Is that what you're telling me? Or he doesn't like, just, there's no big send-off? What? I'm just saying that it's kind of like when uh, Pulaski replaces Crusher in season two of uh, Next Generation, or vice versa when Crusher replaces Pulaski in season three of Next Generation. It's not really a big thing. It's handled pretty quickly. Also, it's kind of like real life. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. 
Great. You know, somebody somebody new takes over the job. Uh, there's an adjustment period. People maybe resent the new boss, but it's uh, you know not the not the biggest thing in the world. Because when I like TV, when I watch my TV, I want real life. Gotcha. Okay. Let's move on, Bob. Let's I move mean, on. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's I, what everybody wants when they watch I, a TV map. My my, my, right. my escapism is not here, even on Babylon Five. <laughs> So uh, today we're covering uh, by any means necessary, which is, uh, by the way, we're counting season one, episode 12 of Babylon 5. And we're also covering Rules of Acquisition, which is episode seven of season two of Deep Space Nine. I thought I'd kick us off on the A plot for by any means necessary. So the uh, dock workers of Babylon 5 are unionized and their guild is led by uh, Neoma. Connolly, who's the uh, daughter of a labor martyr, who uh, his father was uh, killed in a in a minor strike on the Ganymede in 2237, and since the dock workers are uh, on a government contract, they're not legally allowed to strike, but they are feeling very aggrieved because of low pay, double and triple shifts, shorthandedness, and substandard equipment. And this equipment failure leads to an accident and the death of the docking foreman, Eduardo Del Vientos, his little brother, Alberto. The workers start staging a sick out to uh, protest the conditions and demand more workers, better equipment, and better pay. And they have some amount of popular support back home, but uh, the Earth Alliance Senate is interested in crushing this labor action to uh, set a precedent. So they send their hatchet man, Orin Zinto, to break the sick out by claiming it's an illegal strike. Just so the listeners know, Bob has a real hard on for this union stuff, so be prepared. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I, I was a member and uh, a staffer for a public sector teachers union, and I've negotiated, or I didn't negotiate them myself, but I helped negotiate a couple contracts and was involved in a short strike, a very short strike, uh, a too short strike, some might say. So uh, I I really liked this episode for that. I thought it really kind of captures like some of the dynamics at play in a in a public sector union. I mean, when you're in a public sector union, you're sort of a creature of law to a certain extent, and so you're dependent on what the law will allow you to do, forbid you to do, what the law is vague about whether you can do, and we sort of see that here when we have. Connolly and the dockers arguing that they're doing just a sick out or slow down, whereas uh, Zinto is no, saying, no, this is an illegal strike. And uh, I really appreciated this. Apparently this episode was written by uh, JMS's then wife, Catherine Drennan. And uh, I thought she kind of really understood some subtle points about labor negotiations. Like the you see Connolly and the Guild getting kind of vague promises from Claire and from Zinto that, oh, they're going to improve conditions, just wait, things will get better next budget year. And they uh, they wisely don't believe that and uh, keep holding out because you can never trust a damn thing the boss says unless uh, the boss is willing to commit it to writing. Interesting. As someone who doesn't really have any kind of a union protection down here in, in Georgia, <laughs> it's... It's nice to know that there are well, some places, even Babylon 5 has some... Uh... You do have very limited union protection, not not certainly a lot less than I have had in the Northwest, but you, you do still have some rights uh, as organized labor in the South. Not not very much, but some. And we kind of saw that recently with like the West Virginia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma all had teacher strikes in the past uh, few years. So it's it's possible to have a 
public sector strike in a work in a right to work state. It's just very difficult and very potentially dangerous. So one has to be very careful. Keep that in mind. Huh. Yeah, yeah. One other one other thing I wanted to kind of put uh, point out, and then we can kind of pivot on to a couple of other things, is that the in my experience when you're when you're close to a deadline for a negotiation the uh the state does send in a mediator somebody like zento usually the mediator isn't somebody as uh as kind of mean and one-sided as zento like zento is very obviously biased and very coercive and usually the mediator you actually get is just kind of a kind of a bland government hack and unlike Zento, the mediator usually doesn't like take the side of the boss so explicitly, although they usually do so uh, subtly or implicitly. But it's it is sort of interesting that what Drennan really gets right in the script is that the mediator's main job is to get the uh, to get the job to an end so they can move on to the next thing. They don't really care about the result, like the mediator. It's fine uh, with a strike. They're fine with a contract. They don't care what the content of the contract is. They're fine with a, they're fine with an impasse, but they just want to be able to tell their boss um, in the labor bureaucracy at, at the state government, okay, I'm done here, moving on to the next thing. And so in that way, mediators are actually often really big obstacles uh, for getting to an agreement between the employer and the boss. Um, a lot of times the mediators will set themselves up as the sole channel of communication between the two sides which really slows things down and in my experience makes an agreement much harder to get to and yeah. so in that sense um the way that zento is sort of an obstacle to sinclair and the strikers getting to an agreement and it's only when sinclair can invoke uh this broad authority he now has thanks to this anti-union bill that the Senate has passed, it's only then can Sinclair circumvent Zinto and get to an agreement that satisfies everybody. So it's not unusual for like uh, a mediator to really ha put a time limit like uh, Zinto did in this episode. Like, he's like trying to hurry him up. Yeah. He's like, yeah, he's like, I gotta be out of here and go on to my next uh, strike or whatever is going on. Yeah, yeah. It, it isn't unusual for, for mediators to impose uh, deadlines, although usually like the deadline is already kind of in place. Like, you know, contracts usually have like an expiration date. And in general, like, it's not that deadlines are a bad thing. In fact, deadlines are great. You know, you, you want the boss to have deadlines they have to meet and there to be consequences for both sides if those if those aren't met because otherwise you just never get anywhere like the usually it's always in the boss's interest to delay anything and everything um but there are occasionally rare circumstances where it's worthwhile to to bargain after the deadline i'm still like an inactive member in my union and so i'm not paying very close attention to this round of contract negotiations that's happening right now but that's apparently what's being debated in my union right now is i think we're past the deadline for a new contract and the debate is should we take what we've gotten um should we should we strike because what we've gotten is unacceptable or should we try to keep bargaining for a little longer with the hope that we might get a few more scraps and that would justify it so yeah in general deadline aren't really the problem and mediators do kind of impose them it's just generally mediators kind of suck because they they're they don't know they don't know a damn thing about the case usually and they usually really slow down progress yeah they're just, just they're, they're like a roadblock like there's a roadblock exactly. in a way exactly so yeah yeah uh zento does threaten to enact the uh 
the Rush Act. There's nothing like that in the United States, correct? Or is um, there? I, it's it's specifically apparently modeled after a thing called the Riot Act, which is uh, in place or was in place in the UK and certain amount in certain parts of the Commonwealth. I mean, there certainly is a long history of the National Guard getting called in on strikers in the U.S., both uh, both public and private sector strikers. I'm not sure when the most recent uh, one, when the more recent incidents of that happening are, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's happened fairly recently. So invoking the military or the National Guard or private security to, to squash labor, it is potentially a thing that's there. Um, honestly, one of the reasons it may not have happened in the U.S. recently is just that the U.S. labor movement is so dead. I think there's only about 6% uh, unionization in the private sector. Uh, public sector is a bit better. I think something like 40% of public sector workers are unionized, but on only about 6% of private sector workers are unionized in the U.S. And so there's just very little potential to have the type of strike where the boss would uh, call out uh, the the army or the national guard, uh, but yeah, it's not it, it, it's not because they're unwilling. I'd say it's just because honestly, like American labor has been on the decline ever since Reagan broke the the flight controller strike in the early '80s. Although, as I recall, he didn't break that strike with the military; he just fired everybody. And in this episode with the Rush Act, it's meant to uh, anytime there's a strike within a military base or, you know, an Earth Alliance, on the Earth Alliance station, that they could invoke violence against the uh, strikers. Zento was really quick on trying to, like, trying to make this happen as far as, like, trying to get Garibaldi to, and Sinclair both to, you know, go ahead and go through with the Rush Act. What do you think the outcome would have been had, okay, he goes in, they start violently taking these people, they start taking these people, putting them, uh, treating them basically as criminals, locking them up, I guess, in a brig. Is there a brig big enough to care, hold all those dock workers? <laughs> like, there was... Yeah, well, I mean, the goal the goal would only be to put the rowdiest people like Connolly and Del Ventus in the brig. The goal would be to put get everybody else back on the job at the point of a gun. Gotcha. Okay. So really just, you know, trying to... Scaring them into working, basically. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of... Another reason, like, you don't see a lot of, like, military or police coercion of labor right now in the United States, which is partially, again, because there's just not that much labor activity in terms of organized union activity in the States right now. But another thing is, like, in this, you know, in the U.S., you have uh, you have a big army of unemployed people, uh, not so much necessarily right now because of the, uh, the expanded Superdole because of the pandemic. And there's, you know, there appears to be a labor shortage, although, I'm, you know, I think we still need to see more data to actually understand the contours of this supposed labor shortage the U.S. has right now. But in general, like the U.S. Uh, runs a pretty high unemployment rate. You know, it's not very hard for unskilled and semi-skilled positions to get replaced pretty easily. So, in a lot of you know, in a lot of labor conflicts, like on Earth or in places where there's a sort of you know there's a large number of unemployed people, the threat would be to bring in scabs and to bring in replacement workers. Whereas, interestingly, because Babylon Five is you know a space station, that's not an, so easy an option. It would take some time to get scabs shipped in, 
And so that that maybe also is one reason why Zento seems relatively eager to go straight to military force. Yeah, that makes sense. I was wondering that too, because I was thinking they're not going to be able to have anybody replace them unless they start switching over, you know, job positions or things like that. Then you've got a less skilled workforce at that point, which is not a good idea, which could cause even more accidents. Yeah, yeah. And it, w- it really was interesting early on about how ready how ready Sinclair and the Senate were to potentially come down on the workers if the accident could have been blamed on a on operator error in some way. That that was a kind of interesting dimension to it too. One thing, Del Vientos, he was the foreman, correct? Which is a little strange. I mean, I I don't like, you know, obviously the dock workers are a blue collar union and uh, all my uh, union experience is white collar. But usually you're not going to have a supervisor in the, they, the supervisor or the manager might be in a separate union, but usually you're not going to have a supervisor in the same union as, uh, as the workers. Like, um, although I guess there are cases when like, there are some teachers unions where like vice principals or even principals are members. So that's not, that's not unheard of, but still it's a little weird. You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect the foreman to be a sort of leader. I mean, honestly, they should have just called him like a steward. Probably that would have made more sense. Uh, anything else about the unions you got? Yeah, one one last thing. I, I keep saying that. So um, we're going to see a, a union episode of DS9 in a few seasons called Bar Association. And that, that episode gets a lot of love. And it, it has its high points and low points. I mean, you know, I always suspected that Worf and Odo were authoritarian, uh, what would you say, suck-ups to the boss. But I didn't really need it confirmed on screen. So that that's a little unpleasant. I, I think just in terms of like getting like what the actual dynamics of a labor struggle are, that this episode does a lot better of a job than Bar Association, even though Bar Association has its charm. And then the other comparison point that really comes to mind would be the Battlestar Galactica season three episode, Dirty Hands. And, you know, all I can, all I'll really say about that is Sinclair uh, comports himself so much more admirably in this episode than the anti-labor reactionaries President Roslin and Commander Adama do in that Battlestar episode, which is really grim. Honestly, I can't really think of a better depiction of a labor union that I've seen in TV science fiction. And really the only better TV depiction that comes to mind is The Wire season two has a pretty good uh, uh, plot about a dock workers union. If people do want to see some more labor struggle in science fiction, but I just finished watching season one of Snowpiercer, which is on HBO Max. It originally aired on TNT, and that's a really great show so far that really amps up the class war of uh, the movie Snowpiercer. So if people want more of this flavor, although it's not as it's not as about overt labor politics and it's more just about class war. So that's worth uh, worth watching. You know, I've never seen an episode of Battlestar Galactica, honestly. So. You know, it's a, it's a good show, but it just... It's, you know, it's another example, like, uh, allegedly, like, Lost, which I've never seen, where the writers act like they know where they're going, and then they don't know where they're going. It ran for, I think, four seasons, and somewhere in season three or season four, it just kind of utterly falls off the rails. I don't really remember where, but I, like, it's got its virtues. It's got some good performances. It's definitely, like, Ron Moore is the showrunner for uh, Battlestar, and he's trying to do all the things he couldn't do as a writer on Voyager, because the the scenario of, of uh, Battlestar Galactica and its fleet is somewhat similar to the scenario of Voyager. 
And so he's really trying to like, you know, kind of do the grim, dark Voyager in a sense. So it's, it's worth watching, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to do a podcast about it. I, I don't have a very limited understanding of it, but isn't there, are there like two different versions of the show or do they carry on? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the original version came out late seventies. I think it only ran for a season and then maybe had some like, maybe had like a revival that ran for a season. Uh, it was apparently, that was apparently just uh, a big Star Wars ripoff. That was, that's the one that the writer like is Mormon, I believe, or was Mormon because he's probably dead. And it sort of explicitly, uh, you know, incorporates some aspects of Mormon theology. And then the Sci-Fi Channel did a reboot, um, I think in around 2003, there was like a, there's a mini series and then like four seasons and a few spinoffs and TV movies and kind of like Babylon 5, the spinoffs never really go very far. And that was a more like grim, dark show. It, it actually did keep a lot of the Mormon theology uh, stuff, but it did it in a slightly different way from what I understand. Yeah, it was very much that kind of, it was like the peak TV science fiction, or not peak TV, but it was the golden age uh, of TV science fiction show, you know, around about the same time as like The Sopranos and The Wire and Breaking Bad. That could actually, that could actually be an interesting podcast, though, if I could find someone who uh, knew a good deal about Mormon theology. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you you have to reach out to one side of your family maybe yeah i might see, have to yeah. oh, that could be... see see if you can get them yeah so i mean i think we covered the labor stuff um pretty well and uh thank you for indulging me on that because uh yeah you, you, I, you, I, I do love talking labor you're so giddy about the union work that uh you skipped on the b plot so i'll go back and read yeah, it yeah yeah <laughs> I, I, I was gonna well, you know, like uh, help, helping negotiate a labor contract is arguably the only worthwhile thing I've ever done with my life, other than this podcast. So, you know, <laughs> I get excited about it. The, uh, um, but yeah, to pivot back around, um, what did you think of like the Jakar Moliari disagreement? Well, I guess tell us about the Jakar Moliari. Yeah, so, so, so I got to go. I got to go back and read the B plot. Okay, so the uh, the docking accident destroys a uh, a Norn transport that's bringing this rare flower, the Jaquaneth. That Jakar needs for a religious ceremony at the climax of the Days of Jaquan, which leaves Malari at the as the only person on the station with a Jaquan Eth. Malari, Malari apparently the Centauri used this uh, this plant for recreational uses. Um, they like to burn it and uh, take in the incense from it. No, no, that's what the uh, that's what the Narn do. The 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 Centauri have some ritual where they drop the seeds into the right concoction of a drink. And it's almost sounds like it's a mild hallucinogen. That wasn't really clear. Yeah, I could have. Sw- okay. So, so the Centauri use it. As, basically, what I'm trying to say is the Centauri use it as a drug. It's some, yeah, 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 yeah. And then Jakar, he needs it for this ceremony that uh, has to be done within a certain time because uh, the sun has to set over Babylon has to, before the sun sets, he has to do the ceremony and he's the right, highest, but I think he needs to do it at the time that the sun is supposed to rise over a specific mountain. So it's like the first rays of sunlight. I think that's the idea. Good Lord. This is complicated. Okay. So then yeah. he's got to do, so, so, sorry, I keep correcting you. I just don't want, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody sliding into our DMS on Twitter. So I, I well, figure it's, you know, it's, I have to do it. So the creep uh, in our DMS does not, I'm trying to get people to slide into the DMs, Bob. <laughs> I'm 
I'm letting you. Yeah, we, I'm letting you play the smart straight man. And I'm playing like the the other the other guy that has no clue and it just keeps messing things up so they can say something. And say, oh. I mean, we we have gotten some very lovely dick pics in the DMs, and uh, we we thank you for this. <laughs> Gross. Okay. Anyway, so yeah. So anyway, there's this religious ceremony, and Shakar of course needs this flower, and you know Malori's got it, and. Uh, at one point, Jakar sends uh, Natoth to go steal something. What was it? I'm, it's this... See, I was so it's caught. A centaur... It's a statue from the Centauri Cultural Center that's apparently a statue of one of their gods. Yeah, it's one of those weird statues with the funny hair and the like. The it reminds me of like the fer- fertility statues you see in like the old school. Uh... Oh, did we? Did we actually see the statue? I... I think that may be in a later, that may be, it was either an earlier episode or a later episode. I think we actually do see something like it. I don't know. Most of their statues, they were like that. They're, they're, they're basically. Oh, is that, is that the one where the Centauri nobles come to, come to Babylon 5 and they, like, Londo's recovered a, a statue for them? Is that the. Something like that, that yeah. Yeah, but most of their okay, statues. I think that, I think that may be the next episode recovering. Yeah, most of their statues are, are, look like fertility statues. So yeah. we, hopefully, hopefully it has the anatomically correct uh, sanatory genitalia. I guess I, we will see. I, I seriously doubt it. I don't think it does. But yeah, it's a, eventually uh, Malori tells Jakar he can pay him some money for it, and then Jakar gets the money, and then Malori won't accept the money. And somehow Sinclair talks Malori into giving it to Jakar. Well, it's kind of interesting that Sinclair's like solution to both things is like the same is that he sort of like electively reads the the law or electively looks for a hole in the bureaucracy and then just sort of uses that to get the result he wants. Yeah. I, I just don't understand why Sinclair even like gets involved, honestly, from the get, like, I don't know why he decides to involve himself with this part altogether. I mean, it sounds like it, I think both uh, Malari and Jakar threatened to file different diplomatic complaints about it. And I, I don't think uh, I don't think Sinclair knows that uh, Malari was about to kill Jakar in the Midnight on the Firing Line, the first regular episode of the show. But I, I, I think he does have a general sense that like he has to kind of contain their rivalry because you know violence could be the result. Yeah, he could, he could be killed. Yeah, be yeah, that'd be yeah. awful. That would yeah, be no, it, it would it would be it would be hateful to lose the two best people on the show. I agree. So yeah, but Sinclair, uh, yeah, Sinclair fixes the problem at the end. Jakar gets his thing, and Sinclair makes up something about like, oh, the you know, Babylon Five's position in space is like just where it needs to be for you to have to still have the ceremony. My other, th- my other thing too with this is like Jakar is apparently like head religious leader on the station at this point. I guess he's the highest command or something at this like the highest uh Well I think Narn. I think the way they describe it is that since he's the highest ranked Narn on the station, he he has certain religious responsibilities. I think that's kind of although the the show will play up like sort of Jakar as a religious figure a lot as, as it continues like that. This is just starting like, it'll, it'll, they'll play it up a lot more as the, as the show. Continues. There've been a couple of other like small scenes, but this is the first time you're like, Oh, okay. Jakar is actually supposed to be like one of the religious leaders. I, I didn't, I didn't catch on to that earlier in the season. 
Yeah, well, like, well, like I said, I don't, I don't, I don't know if like calling him a religious leader at this point is quite right, but yeah, he certainly does have certain responsibilities. Uh, that ain't that that side of him will get will get played up more as it goes along. I was glad um, though that he did show some like remorse for the uh, the dead dark worker uh, after the Narn ship explodes. Like, very, very little. Yeah, must be noted. It, but, it was, uh, but some. Yeah, there was some, and it it was just enough. I was like, okay. At least he's not, you know, just completely obsessed with his flower. That I, if I could make an editorial comment, I did, I did sort of appreciate too how the episode sort of like intersperses between the two conflicts, and there's a sort of maybe implied commentary about how you know you have this like very serious like labor question on Babylon Five, and you know you're hinging on the lives and the working conditions of. Uh, nearly a thousand workers or over a thousand i think they say which is you know obviously of the the paramount importance and they're having real difficulty getting what they want but then if you pivot and you have this sort of personal spat between two ambassadors that even though it has you know religious significance on the other hand you know it seems very petty very small scale but it uh it eats up almost as much oxygen as the labor struggle and it's also sort of curious like how much more options Jakar and Londo have in terms of like blackmailing each other and stealing from each other where versus how like constrained um, the the union is and how they're constantly under threat that, you know, the rush act will be invoked and uh, you know, the military will be deployed against them. So I just thought that was like kind of interesting tension in the episode. Oh, I mentioned a Toth a minute ago. Uh, this is a, this is kind of random, but they actually yeah. have a, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called Cameo, and it's where uh, oh, yeah, yeah, celebrities, yeah. I know yeah, celebrities will make like a, a video for you on your birthday or whatever. Or yeah, it's it's, I, the, I, it's the safety net for B-list celebrities. Correct. So anyway, so there's a lot of Babylon Five people on there, and <laughs> uh, one of them is uh is Natoth, but I couldn't figure out who she was because it she doesn't it doesn't show her in her makeup or anything. So I was like, who's it's like a very attractive woman. I'm like, who is this? Apparently, she can make you a cameo for like twenty five bucks. Well, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Well, happy, happy, maybe, we, happy uh, maybe we can get her to record a, a promo message for the podcast. Maybe we can just get her, like, I think it's, a cameo is two minutes, so for $25, how much would that be? Like, you know, just maybe get, get her on the show for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, no, that's, I, that, I I mean, if you're paying for it, maybe then. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll, we'll just trick her into like actually being on the podcast. It'd be fun. It's a good idea. I, no, I just—I was just saying we just have a record a stinger. Like, uh, I, her name's is her name Caitlin Brown? Is that right? Yeah. So just yes. have her record something like, "I'm Jude. Caitlin Brown, and you're listening to the Babylon Five versus Deep Space Nine podcast, the best podcast about Babylon Five, or something, yeah, something like that." Perfect. We'll totally do that. We can also get uh, Ivanova too. She's a little more. Okay. Expensive. She's a little more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 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 glad we can get a couple. Apparently, I apparently the Babylon Five cast has been pretty cursed, and a lot of them uh, died relatively young. So, you get Bill Mooney too. Ah, uh, the king, the king. <laughs> All right, Matt, you ready to pivot to rules of acquisition? Yeah, let's look at rules of acquisition, which is blah. All right. <laughs> you sound, this has been the most miserable uh, episode of the podcast ever for you yeah um, between... talking about labor and now now me getting enthusiastic about cross-dressing and you just being like Meh. whatever yeah all right so rules of acquisition <laughs> a plot so, uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, a plot. all right so go for it 
Quark and Quark and his new waiter Pell are tasked by Grand Agus Zek to negotiate for an ever-increasing amount of tulaberry wine from the doci in an attempt to corner the Gamma Quadrant market. Quark and Pell begin to suspect Zek is attempting to sabotage the negotiations. So, uh, obviously, despite your disdain, this is actually, in some ways, a historic episode of DS9. It's the uh, first mention of the Dominion, and uh, specifically, we hear about a Dominion member called the Karima, who will play a minor role, I think, in early Season 3. So I was sort of curious, uh, what, what, did you, what did you think about how we set up the, the Dominion here in this episode? Yeah, this is, I was wondering while we were watching this episode, because we've skipped so many, that have just been like, just awful, and then we get to this one, and I'm oh, like, we'll never, we'll never skip a Ferengi episode, Matt, that's my <laughs> vow for the listeners. So anyway, so we get, and I'm like, oh, that's why, it's the first mention of the Dominion. Uh, well, looking at the, at the, uh, the different aliens that come from the Dominion, with the, with the dose, with the doci, they painted them red, they put spikes on their faces, or little dots or something, and they're just mean, and look like they hurt people all the time they look like so you're saying they're the legion of doom as an that, alien species exactly that's exactly what they are yeah what well, it is sort of interesting that like you know the original idea for the dominion was what if there was an evil federation right like you know a sort of rival power that was a was also like a multi-species coalition like the federation and in in some ways that maybe gets dropped as the show goes because really just you know it it just comes to focus only on the main three species of the Dominion, right? The Changelings or the Founders, the Vorda and the Jim'Hadar. But you can kind of see they're playing that up in the early stages of this, right? Where they're talking about the Karima as a Dominion member. It's a little ambiguous, but there's at least one line that would tend to suggest that the Dozai are also pretty unimportant Dominion members. Although there may be a couple of other lines that suggest that they're not Dominion members. But it it is sort of interesting that really they're kind of going in hard on the, um, the evil federation idea right now. I, I, I mistakenly said they had spikes on their face. I'm sorry. They actually have like the little like their whole outfit was put together from the uh, office supply section of a Walmart. Like those little dots they have look like <laughs> on their face. Well, I, I'm just, I'm just glad uh, I'm glad me uh, correcting you has now extended to you uh, c- you carefully correcting yourself. Exactly. I, you, you need to know <laughs> you're that a, I, you're, I, you're in a loop of corrections here. I am self-aware of my mistake. Okay. But also, my question to the, about the doci too is, okay, they've got red faces and this. Is that eye paint? Is that because they have human bodies? Thanks, Matt. Human no, 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 no. I mean, human, I mean, isn't, well, they got skin, <laughs> like regular looking skin and stuff under. So are they wearing face paint? Is that part of their culture or is that their actual face? Hold on, there's uh, another. Aren't they? Aren't they supposed to be like mildly, uh, mildly reptilian too? What didn't I get that? Did I correctly get that idea from the episode? I, I don't know what they are. Anyway, when they came on the screen, I was like, "Why are we watching?" That was one of the first indicators. I'm like, "Okay, this is Frangie." Now, why are we watching this episode when the doses show up? I'm like, "What is this?" They literally. Had... It. We're not watching it because of the Divinity mentioned it. We're watching it because it's Ferengi episode, and Ferengi okay, episodes are great. <laughs> you know when you have a okay, you know when you have a yard sale and you get those little stickers and you put it on the products to look like what you're selling. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that's uh-huh. what they have on their face, and that's what you're. That's what we're watching. Like I don't know, they're reptilian. I don't. Know, they're wearing like chainmail. <laughs> well, isn't it appropriate that the Ferengi would interact with a species who looks like they have a, a price sticker on them? Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Really, don't. D, D, I, 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 you, you complain, but I see deep thematic appropriateness here. 
Okay, so that so then <laughs> when you mentioned the the Karima, I'm like I have no clue who that. I don't remember them at all. So I'll pull them up, and of course they're just cone heads with uh, hair and have cat yeah, faces, yeah. like cat mouth. I'm like, I wonder why this. I wonder why these species didn't take off, Bob. I wonder why they didn't become like part of the Federation. I wonder why that we only focus you mean the on Dominion. the Dominion. Well, no, they're, no, they're the Dominion, yes, but the Federation, like, I mean, shut up. Anyway, <laughs> you're, you're making me go off on these aliens. No one cares about. Hey, I'm not making you, man. You just keep digging. <laughs> I'm sure there are dose. Um, I'm sure there are full books about the doci like out there that some somebody's there, written. There aren't actually. I looked. Um, apparently, they never. They they get mentioned in one later episode, and apparently they're mentioned in one novel, but it doesn't seem like they ever come back in a major way. Um, okay, good. And yeah, you're you're right. The carry like, I they show up. I think in two or three. DS9 episodes, and then I, I don't think there's a lot done with them in other episodes or novels either. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I mean that, like, the, you know, it, the Dominion starts off as kind of like having all these sort of, you know, weird, uh, weird, forgettable uh, alien races, much like the Federation does. But then they, as, as the show goes, the writers figure out that they really want to just boil it down to the three major species. And that's what they focus on. Yeah. So we know why too, that they, they just look really stupid. That's about what it boils down to. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So let's move on to the big part of this, this, this plot of, uh, Pell is a female, Ferengi, and she's in love with Quark, but so she cross-dresses as a male Ferengi to try to pull a fast one on Quark. Well, in in fairness, I think I don't think she's in love with Quark until after she starts working with him. I think at first, like I think she's doing it because she she wants the freedom of being a male and she wants to earn profit, and then just at, you know while while she's doing that, she happens to fall in love with Quark. Because impar- apparently in like Ferengi culture, the women are supposed to remain like naked and not actually have any kind of like, you know, say in business or to work or anything like that. They're supposed to produce more Ferengi. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think she's the, I, I think I read on Memory Alpha, and this seems right to my memory, that she's that she and Quark's mother are the only female Ferengi that we're ever going to see on the show. And so that, that actually kind of gives an interesting dimension to like, you know, Dax really likes hanging out with the Ferengi and really likes playing Tongo with them. And, you know, Kira kind of calls her out on this a little bit. It's like, you know, why, why do you like hanging out with these misogynistic creeps? And, you know, Dax is like, well, obviously they're misogynistic creeps, but they're also very fun, very interesting. But then when she actually um, meets Hell and she realizes uh, that Pale is cross-dressing, in some way it maybe causes Dax to have to reevaluate the Ferengi a little better because she like explicitly says that she's never seen a Ferengi woman before. And it, it's sort of interesting that the this you know cultural restriction that the Ferengi impose on Ferengi women is also sort of you know comes out and also like affects the character, the human, the human or the trill or the Federation characters in the show. And it affects like the viewer because yeah, we only really see two Ferengi women. Yeah. And on top of this, you realize that Curzon Dax is kind of like a, a weird ass. <laughs> Cause that's where she, apparently Curzon's the one that spent all the time with the Ferengi. 
And as a male, I guess he like had a good time with them. And then Jadzia just takes on those attributes. But uh, yeah, although there is a there is that great scene early on. I thought where like uh, and Rom is like total creep right now. Like you know later in the later in the series they'll make Rom a lot more human, or that's the that's a species this word. They'll make Rom a lot more relatable, and you know they'll give him some interesting characterization. I mean, I still really have never liked the character, but. You know, they do give him a lot of attention and uh, some characterization later on. But in this episode, like in the Nagus episode from season one, he's just a total creep. And it's really hilarious that he's like, you know, he can't believe he keeps losing to a female. And then his solution is to be like, oh, that's right. She has a symbiote. I'm not losing to her. I'm losing to Curzon. And then Jadzia tells him that, no, actually, I'm a better player than Curzon ever was. At this. I feel like Dax is more accepting of like the Ferengi's behavior. Whereas Kira's just kind of like she just gets to get like the uh, the sexual harassment throughout the entire episode. Yeah, yeah, and it it, it is kind of interesting. Like on the one hand, you could on the one hand, um, Kira seems to get you know sexually harassed by Zeke a lot more intensely than Quark sexually harasses uh, Dax. Although Quark does sexually harass Dax, but on the other hand, it, it, there's a sort of like interesting idea that like Dax seems to be. A lot less bothered by it partially i you know because she's been a male in past lives partially because she just seems to have a much more sort of broader and pluralistic understanding of different cultures where in a weird way kira you know despite her experience as a resistance fighter you know it seems to have had a pretty narrow experience of the galaxy Although, you know, obviously, like, I, I don't think having a broad experience of things should necessarily make you okay with groping. But I don't know. Um, yeah, also, what, what I don't, you... also don't understand Akira didn't, like, go off on Grand Agasek. Like, I feel like after the first time, knowing Kira up to this point, I feel like she would have, like, gone after him, like, taken his head off. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, another point I did want to make, and I guess, you know, we've kind of found ourselves in the middle of Thirst Watch. Um, I, I, even though this is not a subtle episode of the show at all, like, one of the things I really did appreciate about it is it really kind of highlights this contradiction in the Ferengi where, like, both Zek and Quark are, like, you know, very, very buy into the sort of brutal patriarchy of the Ferengi society. Like, you know, Zek threatens to imprison Pell in the climax of the episode. And, you know, they both, like, they both believe that women are inferior. They believe the traditional role of them is, like, naked, uneducated, and submissive in the home is the correct way and yet sort of uh paradoxically or hypocritically they're both tremendously attracted to dynamic and accomplished women like dax and kira and even you know quark is even attracted to pell on some level and so it's sort of interesting that like the taste um that zek and quark exhibit in women kind of directly contradicts the sort of cultural system of patriarchy that they're both invested in upholding yeah, this reminds me somewhat of, like, Jakar and his attraction to human women. While I know Kira is not a human woman, she's, I mean, with the exception of the thing on her nose, she's pretty much human. But she's humanoid. <laughs> she's humanoid. So, yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a similarity there. It seems like all the, it seems like the Ferengi are attracted to humanoid women the same way the Narn are attracted to human women. Yeah, I mean, that that is true, like, that is true, but I, I still think, like, it's more about, like, the contradiction, though. It's, like, it's less about, like, Ferengi perving on human women as human women, and it's more about, like, 
the the Ferengi tend to want uh, what they what they can't actually have in their own society, right? Like in their own society, like women aren't going to tell them no. Women aren't going to put up resistance, or at least that's the broad stereotype. That yeah, that's the two Ferengi women we actually meet on the show. That's not really true of, but the broad stereotype is that like women are basically just you know slaves. So what you're saying is the Ferengi want a woman that's going to put up a fight. I mean, when you say it like that, it makes it sound very rapey. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, so, <laughs> that's what I was going for. Yeah, it sounds gross. I, I'm just surprised, like, once again, I'm surprised, like, Kira didn't, didn't do anything to any of them, like, anything to, uh, to the Grand Nagus. Like, she should have pulled out some of her, like, Kung Fu stuff she showed in the earlier episodes. Well, I mean, so, he is a he is a leader of a foreign power that Bajor is somewhat interested in maintaining relationships with so it's you yes know, just take, not necessarily going to sock him in the face just take a little bit of sexual harassment here and there no problem yeah we got this leader <laughs> we want to make sure everything's okay with the ferengi just, just do it for the team kira do it for the team hey man i'm not saying that i'm just saying <laughs> uh i'm just saying she uh she puts a stop to the behavior and uh you know given given the sort of diplomatic implications it's not surprising that she doesn't go further even Dax is like, hey, when I was a dude, man, Ferengi are just like that. Just let it be. It's okay. They're cool. They're cool. Let them touch your ass. No big deal. Yeah, but I mean, granted, neither neither Dax nor Kira let them persist in the behavior. When the when the groping starts, they they put a stop to it. No, obviously the groping should have never started. That's that's messed up. But I, I think you're a little characterizing or caricaturing the episode. Oh, I'm sorry, but if you go to Google and you type in Kira and Zek fanfiction, you're going to see some nasty stuff, so do not do that. Just letting you know. Oh, you did that? No, I didn't really, but I'm just saying don't do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really wild. If, uh, that, that, I mean, it probably does exist. Oh, it, oh, oh I'm sure it exists. I'm 100% sure. I'm sure some yeah, some yeah. creepo like decided <laughs> to take this episode and be like, oh, let's take it a little further. We need that tulipberry wine. Yeah, gross. Anyway, yeah. What one one quick thing I did want to say about the the cross dressing is um, obviously the, there's a long tradition uh, in plays and on television and in film of uh, of characters cross dressing, and usually not always, but usually the cross dressing is not necessarily meant to express like a transgender identity, but it's, uh, it's something a, a cis person does uh, in order to explore other things or for other sorts of gratification. Obviously this episode is uh, not the greatest example of cross-dressing uh, on stage or on screen, but if, if you do want to see some really interesting depictions of cross-dressing, the, the four I would shout out are Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night, um, Thomas Middleton's play The Roaring Girl, uh, the Billy Wilder movie, Some Like It Hot, and the Tim Burton movie, Edward, are all really comedic depictions of cross-dressing that I, I think also have sort of like interesting things to say about cross-dressing as, you know, an identity or a sexual practice that's a little apart from transgender identity. So if folks want to run that stuff down, I highly recommend it. Bob, you left off Mrs. Doubtfire. I uh, I don't think that's a particularly good movie, Matt. <laughs> I must say, um, that's why I stuck to some like it hot and Ed Wood, which actually are good movies. But yes, uh, Miss, Mrs. Doubtfire is the uh, the paramount example of uh, cross dressing in the movies of our childhood. 
So we've pretty much um, touched upon everything in, in, in Thirst Watch at this point with uh, just the weirdness and grossness of the Ferengi and their sticky hands, sticky fingers. So let's move on to uh, Econ Watch. Yeah, so we're sort of getting the pattern here where it's like a Ferengi episode is Zet comes to the station, he offers Quark and Rom tremendous opportunities, eventually they get screwed out of those opportunities. Um, it's a sort of interesting dynamic. Um, I, I did appreciate that Pell also sort of gets one over on the brothers and Zek because she gets to tell Quark and Zek that they're being stupid assholes and doesn't suffer any consequences for that. And then she still gets to walk away with the, the hush money that Quark gave her. Yeah. And then on Babylon 5, we actually get like a, uh, it's in the millions of credits that they're getting for that uh, particular. Uh... Well, if I remember right, the two amounts we're given are the Sinclair is going to divert a million point three million from the military budget to, and specifically he doesn't give the workers a raise. He just says that they're going to upgrade equipment and hire more workers. And then we also get the amount that uh, Jakar uh, is, is willing to pay 50,000 credits to Londo for the Jaquan F flower. 1.3 million credits doesn't seem like enough <laughs> to fix the problem. I mean, maybe, I don't know if that's like, if you're comparing it to us dollars, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that I actually think... isn't all that all that much in the way of workers. Although I mean, I guess we should be if the writers do mean credits as to be equivalent to nineties dollars. I guess that should be factored in. Yeah. If you say like a new worker makes what thirty thousand a year uh, for the job, and you know a million point three is just an annual appropriation, then that that that's enough for like what thirty one workers. Am I right about that? Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad then at that point. But I mean, aren't they gonna like? Although, get... but you are talking about a labor force of over a thousand. So, yeah, how much how much of a difference would like thirty more workers on top of a thousand make? And that's that would just be the workers. You would also have to cut up some of that budget for equipment. Yeah, well, the equipment was the big issue. So I'm assuming they have to buy a lot more new equipment, which is way expensive. So I, I just didn't think that was a lot of money. But then yeah. with, the, with the fifty, but with the fifty thousand credits for the flower, I'm like, eh. That sounds, I mean, $50,000 is a lot in U.S. dollars, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, by the way, we're figuring it, it's basically a salary, it's an annual salary and a half per year for a workman for this for this damn flower, right? Right. Only other two Econ Watch things to say are, we see more use of latinum as a decoration, right? Like, we've had Lexana's uh, uh, latinum hair clip, and then we had a, uh, Quark offering Odo a latinum-lined bucket, latinum jewelry that uh, Negus, the Negus gives to Kira. And then, I don't think we've been keeping track of latinum prices like we have of credit prices on Babylon 5. So I, I think we know that um, Pell walks away with 10 bars of gold-pressed latinum. But I, I, I don't really remember. Like, I think I got the I think the impression was when Quark was fleeing the station... Uh, back in the season two premiere, he was maybe trying to like get away with like a couple thousand bars of gold press latinum. So I guess ten, I guess if that's Quark's entire stash, then ten bars actually is pretty a pretty significant amount of money. But yeah, we haven't been tracking latinum prices like we have credit prices. Okay, apparently latinum is about one hundred eighty-seven dollars. 
is, is that real Latinum or is this some sort of other fake cryptocurrency that people have come up with to inflate? So it puts the value of Quirk's bar between 1 million and 1.5 million US dollars. That means a bar of gold press Latinum is worth about $187. So someone's done the math at some point. So yeah. All right. So a, a bar is 187 and then did it, does it say how much a slip is? No. Okay. But you what you you presume you could probably get about what about thirty slips out of a bar? Does that seem about right? Well, it says one. Assuming one gold plate latinum is one sorry one gold plate latinum is one slip, so one, yeah, a slip is worth one gold press latinum. So a bar is worth one hundred eighty-seven. I don't know how many. Slips All right, you, t- you, you totally lost me there. Sorry, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is econ watch, Bob. Get with it. You've got your union stuff. I've got my econ over here. <laughs> I'm kidding. Right. They're uh, not separate, God damn it. Yeah. They're not separate. <laughs> it also says that Quark made five bars a day in profit, which is about $935 a day from the bar, which means he's making over $340,000 in Earth in profit per Earth year. I mean, that sounds about what you need a, need a bar to make, I would think. Yeah. Nice. Although I guess Quark has significantly le- lower overhead because he doesn't have to pay rent, so we know that. Nice job, Quark. Good job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, good job, the, fictional the, TV the, character. The the Fed the Federation socialism is subsidizing Quark's rapacious capitalism to quite a quite a large degree, as it turns out. Nice, nice. All right, so let's move on. Uh, let's talk about next week's episodes. What we got? Uh, so we got uh, episode 13 by the count we're going with of Babylon 5 season 1, Signs Importance. It's a very important episode. It's the episode that gave uh, Babylon 5 season 1 its name, Signs Importance. So I'm looking forward to covering that. And then uh, we're doing the very next episode of DS9, uh, season 2, episode 8, Necessary Evil. I honestly don't remember what the subject matter of Necessary Evil is. Maybe it's a Odo murder investigation? It is, yes. Okay. Okay. Have you watched that one yet? I have, and I remember. Is it? it. Uh, is it better, worse, the same than Rules of Acquisition? It's better. It's much better. Much I don't know better. if I believe that. I mean, I you know, I I, I kind of enjoyed all the uh, cross-dressing hijinks. It's a fun but... episode. It's a fun episode. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, we'll look forward to uh, getting to uh, signs, importance, and necessary evil. This has been uh, Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. This is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line. All right. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, Email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.